Okay, we are in Lesson 13. Last week we saw the Apostle talking about basically a call for, for separation. And again, we talked, just to remind you of that, when he talks about separation, because sometimes in our Baptist circle we can take it to an extreme. And what he's talking about, though, is your long-term commitments or associations with unbelievers. He is forbidding that. He's not saying that you have no contact with unsaved people, because if that were true, I think the Apostle Paul says in other passages, you'd have to leave the planet. You'd literally have to leave the planet. You'd have to, you know, we'd all have to move to Montana in our own little enclave. Just be basically there by ourselves with no contact with anybody else. Now, some people would like to move to Montana, but, you know, that's that's not the point. The point is is that you and I have interaction every day with unbelievers. But the point is is that you keep yourself separate from their lifestyle and you don't enter into long-term commitments with unbelievers, like business partnerships and especially into marriages. Especially into marriages. So now he's going to move on and we're going to look at uh, chapter 7 again, verse 2 through 16 where he's going to give them some encouragement as well as he's going to rebuke them. So, look with me at verse 2. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Let me just stop for a moment. Remember the underlying theme here is the credibility issue and what they think of the Apostle Paul And so obviously he is answering some accusations here that have been made against him. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all tribulation. So, let's look at a couple things here in this section. First of all, there's an appeal for mutual love. The first thing I want you to notice is the Apostle is telling us, Paul calls the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. He calls the Corinthians to open their hearts to them. So, he wants them to be open with them. you know, Because basically they've been listening to these accusations... And with these accusations, they've kind of been writing him off. They've got no more place in their heart for him anymore because they've been listening to these different things. And notice now, look at what he says there in verse 2, that we have wronged no one. So obviously somebody is saying that Paul's wrong has done some wrong. We have corrupted no one. And that, remember now, that's the chief accusation against the Apostle Paul, especially by these Judaizers, is that Paul is corrupting the message. Because Paul's message was one of grace. The Judaizers were saying that in order for you to be a good Christian, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to what? Keep the law. So they're reversing the accusation here. They're saying that Paul is the one who's corrupting it, but who was actually corrupting the message? The Judaizers were, weren't they? And so he's saying, look guys, we haven't done this stuff. Open your hearts to us. He is appealing for mutual love there. He's appealing them to open their hearts. And so, he pleads his integrity in spite of the charges of some. So, he's pleading his integrity. He's saying, guys, 
You've been listening to false accusations. This stuff that you're hearing is not true. This stuff you're hearing is not true. So he pleads his integrity in spite of the, in spite of the charges of some of them. So then verse 3 now, he tells them it's not an issue of integrity, but of love. And so Paul did not state this to condemn them. So he's bringing this point up to them. Notice what he's doing here. Because immediately we would think, boy, he's lashing out. But no, he says, I didn't bring this up to condemn you. But rather, you know, I'm bringing this up as an encouragement to you to continue on. So, what, Paul stated that the Corinthians were very much a part of his life and love. He just wanted to remind them. Sometimes in order to remind people of what is true, you might have to point out something negative. And so rather than just pointing out the negative, he wants to encourage them and say, okay, guys, even as I'm pointing out the negative, I want you to understand that the reason why I'm pointing out the negative is to remind you, what? That you're a part of my life. That I love you. I'm concerned for you. That I'm concerned for you. We do that all the time with our children, don't we? We do that with our children when we discipline them. When we see something in their behavior or their character that's not right, let me say you should discipline them. And when you discipline them, you're not doing it out of anger. You're not doing it out of spite. You're not doing it to stunt their growth. You're not doing it to do all these things. You are, you're basically doing it because you love them and you care for them and you know that as they get older and as they develop in their character, that if those things aren't addressed right now, they're going to be major issues down the road, aren't they? And so sometimes you have to point out the negative, but yet you also have to follow that up by saying, look, I'm telling you this because I love you. Because I I am very much concerned for you. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. He's saying, guys, you've been listening to these accusations against me, challenging my integrity, but I'm only pointing this out to you because I love you. Because I, I, I care deeply for you. And so, it's not an issue of integrity, but of love. And so then he then follows it up by saying he has confidence in them. So in verse 4, Paul's love was unabated and his confidence in them was unimpaired. His love was unabated and his confidence in, even in spite of the fact that they are going through a rough spot right now, questioning him. Even though they're going through a rough spot right now of, quote, questioning him and questioning his integrity and listening to these false teachers. He's saying to them, guys, I still have confidence in you that you're going to do the right thing. That you're going to listen to what I'm telling you. That you're going to follow through on what should be happening. And so, the next thing is that he, he had pride and joy in them despite all of his troubles. Notice what he says. Great is my boldness of speech, verse 4. My great is my boasting on your behalf. So he's even boasting about them. Notice what he says. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. So even in spite of the hardships of what he's facing, he's got confidence in them. He's boasting about them. He's bragging about them. He has joy about them. Now, now if you were in Paul's situation and you think about people who are acting this way towards you, would you act that way? Be honest. Would you act that way like Paul? Would you be like Paul? 
even have, still having confidence in them, still being joyful about them? Would you be that way? Marilyn's the only one honest here. She said no. Probably not. You'd be like, I'm going to write you off. If you're going to act that way, forget it. That's the end of our relationship. Isn't that how we'll act? But I want you to see that Paul's compelled by a greater love and a greater understanding. What do you mean a greater understanding? Understand what Paul's dealing with here. He's dealing with a church that he has started. That others have come in and corrupted since he's left. So their thinking's not right. But he still has a genuine love and concern for them. And I would say that his love and concern for them is mature because even though they're not doing right, even though their thinking is not right, even though they maybe are leveling accusations at them, he still loves them enough and still has confidence enough that God is the one who's working in their life and he's going to bring them to where they need to be. That really, let's be honest, is the attitude that all of us need to, I mean myself. You know, we expect perfection, don't we? If people aren't progressing, you know, if they disappoint us, okay, maybe one time, but if they disappoint us twice, that's it, we're writing you off. And sometimes we do that in our churches, don't we? But the reality is, is that we need to understand that every one of us are what? Human, flesh and blood. Every one of us has a flesh that strives after and will what? Sin. And when you get a lot of human beings together, not everyone is always going to be just shooting skyward in their progression to be like Jesus. In fact, if, if anything, the Christian life isn't like this. It's like this, isn't it? Up and down. In your, isn't that your experience? Up and down. Victory, defeat. In fact, every time you have a victory, it seems like one step forward, three steps back. See, the apostle has the understanding and the knowledge enough and the love enough to know that he's confident they're going to, because he understands the bigger picture for them, where they're headed. And so, even in spite of what's going on, he can be confident in them that they're going to do right. Now, what's the lesson for you and I? We need to be patient with people. We need to be patient. If someone is progressing along in their relationship with Christ, if they do have issues where they're going backwards instead of forwards, we should not just what? Write them off. Do you understand? We should not just write them off. Because we need to recognize that if they truly know Jesus, ultimately what? They're going to become more and more like Christ. The Holy Spirit's working in their life. The Holy Spirit's convicting them of sin. They need to find victory over that area. That's why you and I need to be praying. Praying for those who need help in their spiritual life. And let me just point it out this way. Aren't you glad no one wrote you off? Because, I mean, let's be honest. If we're honest with ourselves, we haven't been perfect either, have we? Our track record isn't good either. And thankfully, someone was there to what? Encourage us and pray for us and, and encourage us along. So, really, in reality, we need to be like the Apostle. We need to be like the Apostle. Now, some of us, that's going to take an attitude change. Because that goes against the grain because in our culture, because we're more influenced by our culture than we are by the Bible, we live in a dog-eat-dog world that only the tough survive and you've got to be a winner. So if you're a loser, you're history. So like where is it? we just had the Super Bowl last weekend, everybody's talking about the Colts. You know, nobody's talking about the Bears. You know, no, it doesn't really matter about the Bears, does it? 
What matters is Peyton Manning and the Colts because they won. Now, in another week here, don't worry, we'll quit talking about them because the NBA is going to kick off and the big six, you know, the big 64 is happening with college and all of that. Spring madness is coming. So another sport will take place. But the point I want you to see is, is that's our culture. We'll just write you off. We'll forget about you. That's not Christianity. Christianity is that we're there. We recognize we're all in the journey together and we're all not perfect and we're all going to stumble and we're all going to fall. Just to remind you, nobody reaches perfection in this life. And the chances are for all of us, you're still going to fall. You're still going to stumble. Now we hope that as you mature, the stumbling isn't drastic. But all of us still deal with sin. Okay, look at verse 5 now. Looking at verse 5 through 16, the rest of our time here. Notice what he says here. For indeed, when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that though that the same epistle might the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this manner. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. We rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all and how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So we're going to focus on this letter of you. Paul's going to talk about a letter. He sent them a letter. Now this is not 1 Corinthians he's talking about. He sent them a letter to deal with some issues that they were struggling with. And I guess from what he's saying here, it was a pretty harsh letter. I mean, he took them to the woodshed in this letter. He dealt with them. And so he's going to talk about this. So let's look. First of all, verse 5 and 7, there's the report of Titus. 
When Paul arrived in Macedonia, which is now modern day Greece, he, they found circumstances to be very difficult. They found their situation there in Macedonia to be very, very difficult. Now, what he means by that, maybe they found poverty, maybe they weren't doing well physically, maybe they weren't doing well emotionally, and some of the description there probably points to that. Maybe they were facing some persecution for their message. But when they arrived in Macedonia, they found that their situation was very, very difficult. Now, here's what happened. They had to deal with outward pressures as well as inward fears. They had to deal with outward pressures as well as inward fears. Let me just stop for a moment. I want you to look at something here. Notice what the Apostle is saying. He's talking about that they had fears. Why is that significant? Why would that be significant that the Apostle Paul here has fears? Okay, Bruce said it. He's human. See, when you look at a passage like this, this helps put the thing in perspective. Because when we look at the apostles, we have a tendency, whether we like it or not, to kind of put them up here. That they're superhumans. But we, and every time you read the scripture, though, you realize that they're not superhumans. They're just like who? Yeah, they're just like us, you and I. They struggle with the same things. When they're put into tough situations, they have fears also. So when you read these letters, see, that's why I like the Bible. You, the Bible, you can know, is not just written by men because men wouldn't. When men talk about themselves, they don't normally put down their fears, do they? They, But you know it's the Bible because the Bible lays it all out there. Look at David. If, if they, Most of the kings in the Middle East in that time, if they were going to write oracles or write about themselves, would never write about their adulteries leading to someone's murder and their rebuke by God. You would never see that. Only God would put that out there. That's why the book, that's why the Bible is so significant and so much definitely God's word to you and I. Because it lays it all out there. Think about Judges for a moment. You go through Judges, all you see is Israel having what? Problems. One problem after another. And their Judges were all not necessarily superhuman good guys either. Think of Samson. Talk about a guy who struggled with lust. Think of Gideon. Here God does something wonderful for him. And then after the great victory, he tells all of Israel, I want all the earrings. And then he makes the earrings into an idol. So the Bible is is significant because it tells us that these guys are human. And so when you look at the Apostle Paul, he struggled with outward pressures. Do you guys have outward pressures? You guys have outward pressures? Oh, everything's perfect, isn't it? You know, you guys have outward pressure. And sometimes those pressures lead to what? Fears. We have our fears, don't we? We live, For instance, when you live in this area, if you've got a job, you, you're thankful you got a job because you look at the unemployment in our area. And then you wonder, you know, is my company going to be around this week? Or is my bank going to be bought? And things like that. And those are things that we have in the back of our mind. What will I do if I got laid up? Doesn't that, we live with fears, don't we? And so we see that the Apostle Paul is just like you and I. We see that he's just like you and I. Okay, let's go on. Then he talks about the comfort of Titus. Now here's the wonderful thing. As they're dealing with these outward pressures, as they're dealing with these fears, Titus was able to bring comfort to Paul 
with news of the Corinthians' repentance. So here he is. He's struggling. He's, he's dealing with these difficult situations in Macedonia. He's got these fears. He's probably, I mean, in those kind of points, you almost want to say, I washed my hands of the Corinthians. Because he, remember, he sent them a letter. He's going to talk about it here in a moment with what they're dealing with. And then Titus comes and tells them, hey, things are going well in Corinth. They responded. That would encourage you, wouldn't it? Because you'd be like, what's the use going on? And so Titus comes and was able to bring comfort to Paul that things were going well, that things were doing okay. Now, here's the effects of the severe letter. So this severe letter, and I think probably the reason why we don't have it is because God didn't want us to have it. How many of you remember this when you got disciplined by your dad or your mom? You wanted everybody to know you got disciplined. How many of you wanted that? I sure didn't. No, none of us. I mean, you, you just wanted to keep that hush hush, and you know, and you were maybe thankful if your dad didn't say anything to anybody about it. That he had to deal with you about something. I think that, you know, I think it's good that we don't have the letter. We have the reference to the letter because the apostle wants us to see a point here. But the point is, is we don't need to see his letter of discipline to them. You understand? We don't need to see that. That's not important to you and I today. But I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, Paul did not regret that the letter brought the Corinthians sorrow. Verse 8, he says, you know what? Guys, I'm not at all sorry that uh, I don't regret that I made you sorry about what I wrote. I don't regret that it brought you grief. I don't regret that. So, first thing he says is, is that he doesn't regret that the letter brought them sorrow. The next thing I want you to see is, is he doesn't regret writing the letter. Paul does not regret that he had to write the letter. He doesn't regret that he had to do this. You know, there's an important lesson here. You know what? How many of you love disciplining your kids? None of us do, do we? But can I be honest with you? And sometimes when we discipline them, we, we even maybe feel a little regret that we had to. How many of you have felt that? Don't. You've got to get the bigger picture. You've got to get the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this. You are molding their character. And if you don't deal with the issues now, they will continue to grow in that person's life. And it will be harder later on to deal with it. Look, all you got to do is go to Walmart. Just hang out at the toy section. You've seen it, Ken. Ken works at Walmart. You've seen it. Just hang out at the toy section and watch the reaction. First of all, the kids are going to naturally react the way they are. But what I want you to watch is not the kids. I want you to watch the parents. And then mentally in your mind project forward 10 or 15 years. Into the teenage years. And if they don't deal with it now, what will happen later? Because when they become teenagers, I mean, that's when they start becoming independent and everything. See, you've got to mold the character now. So don't regret the discipline. Don't regret it, because the apostle, he, he recognized the bigger picture with the Corinthians, and he didn't regret the issue of discipline with them. He, it's not something he wanted to do, 
he relished doing, but he understood that he had to do it. So, if it produced sorrow in their life, wonderful. It was necessary for them. So, he does not regret that he had to write that letter. And so, look, notice verse 9 now. Paul rejoiced that the letter brought them to the place of repentance. Listen, that's what discipline is for. Discipline is not just a reaction. Discipline is a molding of their character and a molding of their hearts so that they come to the place of repentance. And repentance is not simply just confession. Repentance is confession plus a turning from that issue. A turning from the sin. And so the discipline... The purpose of all discipline, even church discipline, understand something, when we discipline someone as a church, our purpose for discipline is not to humiliate them, is not to just write them off or, and make sure that they have a miserable time as we write them off. That's not the purpose of it. In fact, that's not the right purpose, and I've seen churches that have done that and they didn't do right. The purpose is to bring them to the place of what? Repentance. That they turn from their sin and become a part of the fellowship of the, of the church again. Of the family again. And so all discipline has the purpose of bringing it to the repentance. And so Paul rejoiced that the letter brought them to a place of repentance. The letter brought them to the place of repentance. So then notice now, here's the progression. Paul outlines, outlines the progression of repentance. Here's... He's giving us kind of an outline of how this repentance takes place. And so he outlines the progression of repentance. So look with me at verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. So, first thing I want you to notice there is this. Godly sorrow over sin produces repentance. Godly sorrow over sin a brokenness over sin produces repentance. And then his point here then is this. Repentance or a change of mind leads to salvation. Okay, what are some positive indications or constructive results of godly sorrow? What are some Positive indications and constructive results of godly sorrow. That's a question in your book there. Anyone? Change. Okay, Christina said change. You know, if there's godly sorrow, a a, a good indication of that is there's going to be some change there. There's going to be some change in their behavior, in their action. They're going to work on it. Or at least, if not an outright change, an attempt to change. Okay, an attempt to change because it depends on what the sin is. Because sometimes with the struggle of sin is very strong, isn't it? All right, so an attempt to change. All right, anyone else? Okay, a, a seeking of seeking of making right, a reconciliation type you know, apology is what uh, Marilyn said. Anyone else? Okay, now he goes on and talks about because here's the confusion now. There is two types of sorrow, isn't there? There's a godly sorrow, but there's also another type of sorrow, which he refers to here as, let's see here, we're looking at verse 10, he refers to as the sorrow of the world, or a worldly sorrow. So what I want you to notice is this, 
A worldly sorrow leads only to death. What Paul's talking about here is the difference between remorse and repentance. Does anybody know what the difference between remorse and repentance is? Okay, remorse is sorry I got caught. Repentance is what? Yeah, I'm going to do something about it. I'm sorry that, you know, I, you know, it's like, I remember this, you know, I remember this uh, cartoon I saw. You know, how many of you remember as, as a kid you heard the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree and he could not tell a lie so he, you know. Well, this cartoon I saw had George there with the axe and the cherry tree's falling over and the dad's there and of course he said, I cannot tell a lie and, you know, I chopped down the cherry tree. And the dad says, well, that's great, George. Thanks for telling me, but can you quit chopping them down? Meaning he chopped down more than one. You know what I'm saying? And, the, you know, the whole point is, it was just remorse on George's part. Repentance is a leading to a change of behavior. Remorse is only for the moment, isn't it? And what Paul's saying here is remorse leads to death. Now, the first person I think of when I think of this, a biblical person, what person do you think about when you think about this remorse or a God, a worldly sorrow leads to death? Who do you think about from the Bible? Yes, Judas. Because Judas struggled, it wasn't a repentance of what he had done. He was remorseful, and it ultimately led to his own death, as he took his own life. So, godly sorrow leads to repentance and change in your life, which ultimately leads to life. Worldly sorrow leads to death, or just remorse leads to death. Now, look, here's what it says. Worldly sorrow does not progress beyond remorse. Whereas repentance, we see that they're making an effort. They're moving beyond and they're trying to change. With worldly sorrow, is there any indication that they're changing? Probably the only change you're going to see is that they're going to be a little bit more sneaky about it. They're going to be a little bit more sneaky about it. So, what's happening there is worldly sorrow does not progress beyond remorse. It doesn't. So why, what makes worldly sorrow so destructive? Okay, it leads to separate, or, or it, you already are separate, but it's a reflection of that separation. That's good. What? It's false. Okay, what were you going to say, Lori? Yeah, it's deceptive. What makes it so destructive is not just deceptive to others, it's deceptive to the person who's expressing it. And only time tells the difference. You can't tell the difference at first. Because both look look alike at first. Repentance and remorse look alike at first. Everybody recognize that? Godly sorrow over sin, you, you regret your sin the rest of your life, don't you? With remorse, it's like, I've already dealt with that. Why are we keep bringing that still up here? Why, why are we still worrying about that? And so, it can be destructive. It's destructive to the person who's expressing because it really is a deceptive thing. It is a deception to the person about their true condition. Now, look at the effect on the Corinthians. We're going to go through some several things. Paul calls them to pay attention to how they were brought to sorrow. He wants them to pay attention to how they were brought to sorrow. Then he says this. 
He wants them, they were to recognize what godly sorrow produced in their lives. They were to recognize what godly sorrow produces in their life. Listen, godly sorrow, you know it's true because it will always produce life. It's going to produce growth in that individual's life. And so he wants them to recognize that. That it's going to produce growth in their life. And so Paul talks about why he wrote the letter then. Paul wrote the letter to benefit the Corinthians and their well-being. That's why he dealt with it. Listen, that's the whole purpose. Again, as I understand, the purpose of discipline is not you exerting your influence or your power or whatever and, and, and just, you know, mad control. The purpose of all discipline is always for the well-being of the person who's being disciplined. Does everybody understand that? You're getting a bigger picture here, not just a reaction of the moment, but rather that you're thinking in long terms of their character. And so he's thinking in long terms of their benefit. Alright? So, Paul wrote the letter to benefit the Corinthians and their well-being. So then, look now then, we're going to look at uh, four quick things here that uh, basically talk to us about the report of Titus and some more comfort from them. And that's here. Notice this. The first thing is, Paul was comforted and rejoiced because of Titus' report concerning them. So, because he heard, heard that they responded in a positive way, that they responded with sorrow, because they responded to the discipline, Paul was comforted and rejoiced because of the report. Listen, think about this for a moment. When you're disciplining, while at first it's not pleasant, and nobody enjoys disciplining, do they? Nobody. But when you see the end result of it, when you see a character later on that's been developed, you recognize it was worth it. It was for their benefit. It was for their benefit. You understand? It's for their benefit. Look, you, listen, can I be honest with you? You have a responsibility. The church leaders, can I be honest with you? The leaders of the church, that is the elders, have a responsibility, according to the Bible, to guard over the welfare of the church. And as they guard over the welfare of the church, occasionally we have to, what? Discipline. And what I mean by that is not that we take you to the woodshed, but we go to you and talk to you about the issues in your life to help you to grow because ultimately we're concerned about your well-being down the road. Now, thankfully, we've not had to do that at this point. But that's the whole... See, every one of us, whether we're a leader in a church or whether we are a parent at home, we have a responsibility to what? To care for each other, to seek for each other's well-being, and ultimately to maybe have to discipline. So real quickly, then here's what he says. This, Titus confirmed Paul's prior report concerning the Corinthians. See, Paul told Titus, they're going to respond because he had confidence in them that they were going to do the right thing. And so Titus came along and just confirmed what Paul already knew that they were going to do. Now, then he goes on, he says this. Paul tells them that Titus had strong feelings of affection for them. So here's Titus. He comes along and he, he, he's even developed a, his own feelings towards the Corinthians. So Paul tells them that Titus had strong feelings of affection for them. And then finally, verse 16, 
Paul rejoices because he has confidence in the Corinthians in everything. See, even in spite of the fact that he had to take them to the woodshed, that he had to deal with them about some issues, he still has confidence in them concerning everything in their life. Isn't that an awesome thought? He still has confidence in them. Something for us to learn. Okay, next week what we're going to look at is we're going to spend eight, nine, I think chapters eight and nine talk about the whole issue of generosity and money. So we're going to be talking about those those issues starting next week. Okay, let's close our time.